This is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along while we can. Always give love the upper hand. All right, so we're here uh, a little after 9 p.m. on January 19th. Uh, less than 24 hours before uh, the inauguration of President-elect Biden and maybe less than 24 hours before we can start to say goodbye to the uh, <laughs> to the circus that has been the last four years um, under the current administration. I'd like a, one quick plug. Uh, today is my dad's birthday, so happy birthday, Dad. Ah, happy um, birthday, Mr. Goshroy. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Uh, He's sort of my inspiration for a lot of my interest in politics, um, you know, before it was cool. <laughs> that's really, oh, that's really sweet. Hopefully he listens and hears that. That's awesome. Happy birthday. Yeah, he may or may not. We'll see. Um, I won't tell him about it and see if I. See <laughs> yeah, it's a good test. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, sort of uh, a momentous, uh, well, definitely a momentous occasion um, a lot has happened in the past few weeks, some of which we've talked about, um, some of which uh, we'll cover tonight. Um, but I'll let you uh, I'll let you run it down. What are we talking about this week? So, as you mentioned, tomorrow is the inauguration of the Biden Harris administration, which, you know, ipso facto makes today the last day of the Trump Pence administration. And so one of the things that we had bandied about back and forth is trying to do a reflection on these last four years, or at least a general overview of these last few years. It's been so much, as you mentioned, a, a circus and so chaotic and so much has happened. It's been a long four years. So we'll do our best to recap those four years um, in the next hour or so, uh, a little behind the scenes where I think both of us are kind of hoping to be largely done discussing Trump as our main topic here on the podcast. And I'm certainly hopeful that the media at large will, will move on to a large extent. Obviously he's not going anywhere. Like his, we're still going to discuss, you know, his impeachment trial uh, is he could be put on trial as soon as next week. Uh, he, his presence in the media and social media, his family, they're not going anywhere. His followers are not going anywhere. So it's not like, Tomorrow is the end of the Trump era in, in, by any means, but uh, I think I and we are hopeful that we can move on a little bit after today. And that's why we, we wanted to kind of just spend this last episode really just unloading, unburdening ourselves of all of the, the Trump stuff that we still have to say. Yeah, we're going for some closure here, I guess. Exactly. So I think when I pitched it to you originally, you were, you were like, I don't want to really talk about him anymore. But then you're like, well, I also don't want to talk about him after tomorrow. So let's just get out of the way, which I totally agree with. So let's get out of the way. And then uh, our plan for next episode is to look ahead to the next four years in the Biden-Harris administration and, uh, and, and, and hopefully start to move on to some newer topics. Uh, but before we get into that, I have like a quick little little story for you. So I had a dream. This was last night. Oh, boy. And it was a very 2021 dream. And it was super vivid. When I always woke up, I was like, I got to tell Ricky this. And this is the first time I've talked to you since last night. So this is the chance you're going to hear it. So anyway, uh, I am at Fenway Park watching the Sox. 
And apparently we're still doing some social distancing because the stadium's only like half full. And it's a close game. And then it's like the like late innings. I think it was like the eighth or ninth inning. And security and police start coming in and say like, there's been like a coronavirus scare. Like everyone has to leave. And so people start to file out, but then there's like a lot of pushback and people are upset and they start like yelling and throwing things at like the cops, like the police officers, the security guards. And like, I'm looking around being like, this is kind of getting out of hand. And then Biden shows up out of nowhere and like lectures everybody and is like, stop doing that. And then after everyone kind of comes down, he's like, does anybody want to take any pictures? And I started like taking pictures of like my friends with Joe Biden. And I woke up and I was like, what a what a, you know, a dream, like in and of a time, it just combined, like my subconscious being like, all of these things are on your mind. Let's throw them all into one, into one scenario. I mean, it's kind of what you hope that Biden comes in just like the granddad that he is. And like, for the first time he raises his voice and scolds everybody. Some, somehow we get back to some sense of order. Maybe like if you were like my therapist, you would be, you would be like, all right, you are, you're, I mean, it would actually be kind of fitting of me, right? Like you are looking at it optimistically. You recognize the problems in the society, but you think that things might change and get better. And subconsciously you always wanted to be a Democrat. So here we go. <laughs> ah, oh yeah, there we go. Save that for another episode. All right. So we're going to talk uh, the, the Trump era over these last four years. We're going to start kind of chronologically before moving into the achievements and failures of of Trump over these last few years. But what I wanted to do to start is to take it back to 2015, but really 2016. And of course, hindsight is 2020. It's easy to do revisionist history. But Ricky, I'm curious, you know, whether it was his candidacy in the Republican primary, his campaign against uh, Hillary Clinton, or his ultimate victory in, in the 2016 election, uh, very curious to like at the time, how were you feeling? How did you react to the rise in the election of Donald Trump? Yeah, it's a um, it's a good question and almost hard to sort of divorce my feelings about him over the past four right. years. So, right. You know, what I had thought about him in 2015 and 16. And then, you know, quite frankly, I I was spending more time thinking about the sort of the, the nomination battle between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, which was playing out, you know, in parallel to what was going on on the Republican side. Um, I think when I was, yeah, so I'll be honest, I wasn't paying too much attention to it. I really thought it was a very long, I mean, as, as most people did a huge long shot candidacy, Obviously, I was not impressed with things like, and probably we'll talk about this in a little bit, but, you know, his his birther campaign and trying to delegitimize Obama's presidency because he might not be an American citizen or something, have a fraudulent birth certificate. Obviously, the concept of fraud comes up a lot with Donald Trump. But, um, you know, there were certain things that set him apart uh, that, that actually were, were a little bit appealing. Um, one, I wasn't entirely convinced that he had a ton of interest in the job. Um, he talked a lot I about, he had, I didn't know that he had a ton of, I think that was like an accurate perception. Right, I don't right, know that he right. had a ton of interest in the job. Yeah. Right. But he, he said certain things like, you know, I want to end America's like kind of endless wars and, and conflicts abroad. I don't think they're doing anything for us. Um, 
he and oddly enough, you know, my guy, Bernie Sanders went after um, a lot of sort of the free trade agreements that, um, that, you know, were, were sort of between administrations from Clinton through Bush um, and even into the Obama era were really had been strengthened, but, but in many ways, never quite reckoned with the fact that they were, um, you know, gutting certain parts of our society, kind of the middle-class manufacturing type jobs that had been kind of a bedrock um, for the U.S. for for the better part of the last like 80 years had sort of gone by the wayside. And he was talking a lot about that. Um, and then certainly just, you know, in that, in the primary contest with, um, sorry, not the primary contest, in the general election uh, debates with Hillary Clinton just started saying all kinds of things. And you're sitting there like, there's no way he's going to win this election. He hasn't said anything that makes any sense um, at all. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, there were there was once it felt like one misstep after another that you would have think any single one of those events would have disqualified him. It's almost like he had like a million of them. And so none of them mattered somehow. Um, and so it was certainly, you know, after that election and, you know, I can say I was not, I was not thrilled for a Hillary Clinton presidency, but I voted for her. Um, yeah, it was, I guess, bewilderment that it actually happened and then started to have to come to terms with like, well, how does this happen? Where does he get these, where, you know, where does he get votes? Um, and we had, you know, debates over, over, uh, over the next few months as to sort of how this happens. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was a, is a point of, of reckoning, certainly. I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but I took you yeah, on. No, I, I, I do think in, you know, it's the beginning, it's hard at this point to divorce ourselves, you know, in January of 2021 to take us back four or five years. And I think, uh, because people have seen what has happened, people are just more entrenched, generally speaking, in their in their positions than they were five or six years ago. Um, where it's, I told you so, I knew this was going to happen, or you know, this was the greatest president in, in modern times. <laughs> like, there, I don't think there's a lot of people that have have changed over the last. So I just kind of wanted to take it back uh, for myself. Uh, we talked about this a couple episodes ago, where. I was not a fan of him as a candidate in the presidential, in the primary. Uh, there were 17 candidates, many, if not all of whom were far more qualified than he was, but he, he got that early lead, that, you know, high 20s, low 30s percentage, and just, it, and just never seemed to waver. And as all the other candidates cannibalized each other, it became clear he was the guy. Uh, and then, you know, once he was, once he became the nominee, of course, you thought he had, he had no shot. And as I mentioned before, I, I did not vote for him. I, I didn't think he was qualified to be the leader of our country, but I was as anti-Hillary as I was. I was I, I, probably even more anti-Hillary than I was um, anti-Trump. And I remember distinctly the feeling like watching that night. I know you were probably asleep by that point, but uh, I remember staying up all night and watching it and being like, he's going to do it. And shocked would probably be the first reaction, but there was, I'm not going to lie, like some element of, of glee uh, in watching all of the pundits and all of these liberals and, and the Clinton campaign that was just so entitled and thought they were so much better than millions of people in this country and made no, 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 they did not try to hide their disdain 
for people who supported Trump and who didn't like Clinton and didn't think that she should just, you know, it was her destiny that, you know, she was just so um, privileged and entitled to think that she should just walk into that office. So honestly, I was, I, I woke uh, that, I went to bed that night, honestly, despite not liking Trump and not voting for him with a smile on my face. Well, that that's so, I mean, I guess this is something we'd never talk in depth or at length about what for you uh, were sort of the worst parts about Hillary Clinton's candidacy. Cause I think they'd be very different than, than the things that, that I might think about. Yeah. I honestly, it wasn't necessarily like policy, although I disagree with her on, on plenty of her policy issues. It was really the, and I, I kind of mentioned this several times already, but the entitlement, the, the, the fact that, the way, and this goes to her a little bit, but really the way the campaign was conducted, I, I mean, not that I was rooting for Bernie Sanders or anything, but uh, I very much think the Democratic National Committee and the Democratic establishment really screwed Bernie Sanders out of a, a fair shot, a fair shake in, in the primary election. And because they, they, again, it was just Hillary's turn. And in my mind, it should never be anybody's turn to have the highest office in the land. It didn't feel like she needed to, to work for it or run from it. And certainly her campaign strategy, like we can take your state of Wisconsin, right? Doesn't feel like she needs to go there. That's mine. Of course, people are going to vote for me. And in, even like the use of the phrase deplorables, I know that was just one phrase, but her campaign used that rhetoric for months to describe many people to whom Trump was speaking to and who had real grievances with the Obama years. And Hillary Clinton was an embodiment of those policies. She was the secretary of state for a, a, a term uh, during that time. Uh, and it just, I did not like the the attitude of that we're better than you and that I deserve to be in office. Uh, th that really rubbed me the wrong way. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, um, I, I mean, I think that perception of how people viewed her candidacy to a degree uh, was certainly certainly borne out on election night. I think it would be hard to, to, to say that there wasn't a lot of um, sexism against her as well. Like, you know, had she been sort of a, a, a man in a similar position, a Kennedy perhaps, you know, with a similar sense of entitlement, would you have felt that way. I, I think it's fair to ask that question. I'm not necessarily accusing you personally, but I, I think a lot of the detractors for me, I mean, primarily her, her I mean, she is a war hawk and, and, you know, all her ability to get out of conflicts in the Middle East with her as a president were uh, not, they were not looking good. Um, I think her stance on Russia, North Korea, China, all of them were problematic for me. Um, but at the end of the day, I guess there was no doubt in my mind she was more qualified for the position than Donald Trump, whether she, whether those qualifications led lent her, you know, an, an air of entitlement. Um, I, th I mean, I think that's a perfectly reasonable uh, perception, but um, I don't know. I don't know that we would have had this, I mean, no, I do know that we would not have had a lot of the problems of the past four years had she been president. But I think I think you're right. In many ways, his election did wonders in terms of opening our eyes to where we actually are as a society and not where we imagine ourselves to be, especially for like the upper middle class um, who really 
sort of lived a charmed existence and thinking that because we had a black president that, you know, issues of race in this country were more or less solved uh, because we had low unemployment, that issues of, um, you know, economic prosperity in this country were more or less solved. I think Trump really pulled the curtain back on a lot of those um, pieces. Um, so I'm, I'm ruining your segments here because I'm kind of going from. Yeah, we'll get into all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. More depth later. But I, I will say uh, my, that was my kind of beef with the perception of her, of her as the candidate. There were certainly, and you alluded to a few of them, like legitimate. I didn't like a lot of her policies too, but um, that's that was kind of beside the point in terms of why her candidacy rubbed me the wrong way so much. But I think it's a, it's a fair point about uh, her being a female candidate. I did not think, and maybe this is a sexist thing to say, but I did not think she deserved to be our first like a female president. I think there are far more um, people that have, whether they've earned the right or, or at least as qualified or better representations of the country that hopefully within the next you know four or eight years, we, we will see in that position, uh, whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know how, I don't know. We'll, we'll just leave that at that. Um, I will say, that your your story reminds me we had like in eighth grade when I was teaching eighth grade we had a like a an election for the president of like the student body and there was this girl who did a like great preparation was like super prepared gave this great speech ran like a legitimate campaign and this other this boy who was uh was kind of a clown like in like known as a clown but like funny and well liked and he got up clearly hadn't prepared his speech at all but was like affable and like his, his speech and we had the kids vote on, you know, pieces of paper, you could check one and then it said, give your reasoning. So like, just like explain why you voted for what you did. And I remember reading one, it was from a kid in my class. I could recognize his handwriting, a uh, really quiet kid. And he was like, this is kind of like Trump versus Hillary. You know, Hillary's more comp more qualified, but sometimes you just want something different. And he voted for the other kid. <laughs> I, like, I, I, I have a picture of my phone because it killed me at the time. I was like, touche, man. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Whatever. And that's, I mean, I think that's what a lot of people did at the time. We just want something a little bit different. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, for better or for worse is what you get with a democracy. But God, that's a horrible way to vote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I will say, post-election, I was... Uh, Again, while I was not thrilled about a Trump presidency, I was hopeful. And that is kind of like my nature to be optimistic about these things. But I really felt that Trump, I didn't think was, don't think is a Republican. I also don't think he was a Democrat. I think, in, I don't think that he, and you've said this before, he has no, he was not tethered to any sort of principles or policies or ideologies. I felt like he could be molded in a good way where some of the things that you were alluding to in terms of like, let's question America's foreign policy and our, our interventionism. Let's question America's policy around trade, America's place in the world. Like America first has become kind of a, you know, a nationalist, almost like racist, like rallying cry. But the idea of, I want to put our country first is not necessarily a bad idea. Let's question our immigration policies. And again, we, we're going to get into it shortly of how he handled all of those things. But as you know, when we're in, November of 2016, I'm looking at it and being like, we really have potential here. He, he sold himself as a deal maker. And in a Congress that was totally dysfunctional for eight years, largely through Republicans' faults, but I was like, Trump might be someone that's going to be able to make deals in Congress and bring, bring people together and, and be the kind of different sort of leader that, yeah, we all kind of make fun of it now, but 
is not politically correct and is just going to legitimately talk to the people and use his platform to get people engaged and tuned into, into politics. And I really thought that coming out of 2016, we could have something here. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where like if he wasn't like fundamentally like a bad person, his style of governance, his disdain for political correctness, like all of those things might have actually worked to his advantage in it in a system that is constantly just like rooted in, well, this is how we've done it. So this is how we're going to do it um, way. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, there were a lot of like, well, he will, you know, grow into the presidency and, and there are sort of norms that people adhere to and he will adhere to those too, because that's what presidents do. And uh, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. We know that, that, that that's not how it played out, but certainly you know, if you were uh, on the left and thinking, you know, a Trump presidency could be a disaster, but what is the, you know, what am I grasping onto? What what can I hope for? He had promised some infrastructure stuff. Uh, you know, I'm a big New Deal guy, like infrastructure spending. I'm always for that. I, and I think the U.S. could certainly use it. And he talked about it. Obviously, we got none of that, um, unfortunately. But yeah, I was hopeful that there would be a few areas, um, foreign policy being one of them, which like, I mean, I think you may bring up some, some foreign policy, I won't call them achievements, maneuvers maybe um, on, on his success list. Um, but I don't think, I think anything he achieved in that arena was achieved more or less accidentally and that, um, and that he really did more harm than good um, when he sort of had an opportunity because like you said, he wasn't coming from a, 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 an ideological base that he had to adhere to, right? He was the infrastructure guy while he was also the cut taxes guy. So he was really just like a wild card on everything. Um, and so, so yeah, as, as a Democrat and sort of seeing how the Republicans in the minority were able to block like 95% of the moves that Obama wanted to make, you were kind of hopeful, like, all right, maybe we can do a lot of that same blocking on, on major stuff. And then that'll force him to talk about some of the stuff that, that is sorely needed and that we all want. So when we come back, let's, let's get into some of those, I guess we'll call them achievements and we, we can debate whether or not they were actual <laughs> achievements when we come back. All right, sounds good. Give a about a budget when you always be the subject of discussion, but it's nothing when you stop and just say because you walking out in public and you hear them talking rubbish. I just want to rap, ride through the city in a cutlass, kind of somewhere, get my kiss. So, as I mentioned in this segment, we are going to focus on the quote unquote achievements of the Trump administration. These are the things that conservatives will point to today in a year, in five years, and say, look at all of the things that the Trump Trump and the Trump administration did. I will preface this by saying when we get to the failure section later, I think that vastly overshadows any of these achievements that I'm about to mention. But I do think it's necessary, one, because as I've said before, I do think between 2016 and 2019, 
Trump as crazy as he was and the rhetoric was, was more or less in bounds with a lot of the stuff. Uh, perhaps you disagree, but uh, he did have some achievements or accomplishments that until this past, you know, these past 12 months, you know, would be regarded as, you know, whether a successful presidency or not, then we could really have had that debate. Um, so I'll, I'll acknowledge that these successes in the long term are not going to be what defines his presidency, but these are the arguments you'll certainly hear in conservative circles as uh, things that Trump did well before things outside of his control uh, came in and ruined this presidency. So I'm going to throw a few at you. You can pick which ones you want to talk about, if any, uh, and I'm going to save one for later that I definitely want to talk about. So uh, let me give you four. One, uh, the economy. Two, trade policy. Three, the reforming of the judiciary. And four, criminal justice reform. So I'm going I'm to save my fifth for later. But my, again, my four that I would say were Trump's achievements were you know, economic progress, um, improved trade policies, the, the reforming of the U.S. judiciary, and uh, criminal justice reform in the U.S. Um, I mean, where do I begin? I think, uh, I think the least controversial of which maybe on the criminal justice reform side, something that we've talked about is that, you know, Trump does tout a big victory here, I think in large part, because although many of these issues had been recognized under the Obama administration, the Republican Congress that he was working with was, would have been unwilling to hear any of these types of reforms. So I, I will, I, I did want to say that, but that doesn't necessarily to, de, you know, detract from the fact that, that Trump did make some, uh, you know, had a hand in some landmark legislation. Um, yeah. Uh, just on that note, I think it's important that one, we acknowledge that like, it wasn't like Obama wasn't aware of these problems and it's two, not like Trump solved all these problems. There's still a ton of work that we need to do as a country, as a, as a society, as a government uh, in these areas. But I will say, and I, I think this has been recognized even in fairly liberal circles of, you know, Trump signed the first step act into law, which um, was an act to reduce recidivism and help inmates or uh, like successfully rejoin society. Um, the ready to work initiative helped connect employers and incentivize employers to uh, employ uh, previous uh, people that were in jail. Um, have several programs that to give like inmates opportunities to live crime-free lives and find meaningful employment, gave millions and millions of dollars for all these different programs. So uh, it's, it's something, and I think I might've mentioned this on a previous episode where uh, Van Jones said like rhetoric wise and as a symbol, Obama did far more for you know minorities in this country, for black Americans in this country. But he was like, if you actually look at the policies kind of being fair, you know, the Trump administration did do a lot of things and for minority populations, certainly, as we've discussed many times, our our criminal justice system is uh, is is racist and is overwhelmingly affects minorities. So any reform in the criminal justice system does disproportionately, in a good way, affect minority populations. Yeah, I mean, I, I at the same time, you know, we shouldn't omit or or forget the fact that he sort of reinstituted federal capital punishment, which we've talked about at. at at length here. Um, yeah, I, I think the, I would push back on that. And while I, I made my you know feelings about capital punishment clear, I think what was maybe episode 10, uh, 
I could push back on that and say that you know, a lot of people are in favor of capital punishment. More states are in favor than not. And if he was enforcing, he was his administration was helping enforce laws that already existed and, and sentences that were already given. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I, I think globally capital punishment makes us an outlier. So in sort of the grand scheme of like human human progress and progress of civil society took us a few steps back there, I would argue. But um I was just kind of leaving that aside as, as potentially the least controversial of, of the four. Um, I would say on, uh, sorry, the, the top three where I heard the economy. Um, what were the other two you, you listed there? Trade and the judiciary. Trade. Okay. So tra- uh, trade, like you can, I, I think both liberal minded and conservatives would point to, uh, sorry, the the USMCA, the Mexico-Canada trade agreement as being um, a successful successor to NAFTA. Uh, You know, I'd argue that his uh, approach to trade agreements is still, um, you know, not preferable to like a a normal uh, bilateral negotiation between uh, amicable trade partners. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the result there was pretty good. I think largely, though, um, his trade policies have not actually been nearly as effectual as he would tell you they were. Um, some of the stuff he did with China, okay, maybe you see some benefits in the, in the steel industry, but we suffered retaliatory tariffs in a number of different ways, something that he failed to grasp is that tariffs are not paid for by the country that you impose them on. They're paid for by your own people because they now have to pay a higher price for goods that were being sold to them at a lower price. That doesn't mean that we had a perfect trade agreement with China, but I don't think he made any meaningful improvements on that. Um, And I would argue... on the sort of the larger part of the economy, it's another accomplishment that he claims that he had very little to do with Um, the economy continuing to grow as it had been growing under the Obama administration is largely a factor of consumer confidence, interest rates being low, which you can maybe tie to him as a president like a little bit, but his main economic achievement being the tax cuts and jobs act um, vastly increase the the wealth gap between different social economic statuses um, certainly uh, did not improve any situation um, you know on a, on a sort of a racial economic metric um, and didn't bring back the jobs in the droves uh, for manufacturing that it promised that it would simply because it, it, it can't we still operate in a relatively free market um, and it's that's just not how it works. So uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, pick your poison. Uh, um, I I think I think certainly there are um, there are things that we have been reticent to acknowledge that that he achieved. That any sort of you know, if history doesn't have a bias, you have to 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 take the good and the bad, and and regardless of your personal feelings but it's far more bad than good. And, and even the good things are like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I I think everything you said was fair. It's funny because like personally I'm very like in favor of free trade 
and I'm in favor of like balanced budgets and not running huge deficits every year. So it's hard for me to like sit here and defend those positions, like his kind of quote unquote achievements, but I will, I'll let me, I'll, I'll make my pitch. Uh, so starting with the economy, again, you go to 2019, uh, huge tax cuts, $3.2 million, trillion dollars in tax cuts, uh, doubles the child tax credit, eliminates the estate tax. He cuts the business tax rate from 35% all the way to, to 21%. Uh, brings $1.5 trillion back into the state. We have the lowest unemployment rates uh, for, you know, for women in, in 70 years ever for Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, Native Americans, individuals with disability. Like uh, income inequality fell for two straight years. 7 million people got off food stamps, jobless claims hit a 50 year low, unemployment rate was 3.5%, the lowest in 50 years, 7 million new jobs, uh, 40 months in a row with more openings than hirings, the, the NASDAQ hit 20,000, the Dow hit 20,000 for the first time in 2017 and top 30,000 for the first time in 2020, um, S&P 500, NASDAQ repeated record highs. Like, again, I totally want to acknowledge that the economy is largely out of the president's hands for better or for worse the presidents are largely tied to the economy which i think reflects like a fundamental misunderstanding amongst the populace of like what presidents can actually do but it's going to be by far i think the number one thing that conservatives trump perhaps historians in terms of successes look back on and say look at 2019 it looked like our economy could not have been any better and whether or not you want to give president uh, credit to president trump it happened under his watch yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, there are a couple of things that you highlighted there, right? Like reducing the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. Another like Republican trickle down economics function that we really didn't see. We didn't see added investment because of a lower corporate tax rate. There was, you know, the other uh, pieces of that repealing the estate tax, like how many Americans actually know what the estate tax is or what it does? It affects like the top 10, you know, the top one tenth of a percent of the 1%. Uh, people who are like leaving like multi million dollar estates down to the next generation, right? Like a lot of these. And then even the basic rollback of the federal income tax was essentially flat across all tax brackets, which all that effectually means is it's a huge regressive. Uh, change in the tax policy because 1% for somebody making $50,000 a year, like do the math, that's like 500 bucks. 1% for someone making $50 million a year, that's a big chunk of change. And, and obviously it doesn't exactly work like that because of marginal tax rates. But you, you get my point in that, you know, Pence was on the debate stage talking about, you know, Obama or Biden's going to come and take that like $1,200 average uh, savings that we gave for you. So average savings for the average American being $100 a month um, based on the based on the new tax plan or based on the new tax plan, where as you, know, you had the top 10%, the top 1% getting in hundreds of thousands of dollars of tax breaks. Um, again, on the backs of like, if there are low lower taxes, we'll have a better economy. But the economy had been growing under the Obama administration. There's, there's like questionable evidence that it was like kickstarted by a lot of the things that Trump did. So yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right on the on the unemployment numbers. Um, oddly enough, it didn't seem 
and you know, and we've talked about how it prepared people for the pandemic. It definitely did not. Um, and then it it didn't seem like people were less angry, which you kind of think they might be if uh, if everything's going so much better under in like an in an economic situation. I don't know. How, like that's a very soft qualifier, but um, something that I think about. That's an interesting point. I haven't thought about that at all, but it would, I'm sure there are people out there like scholars, like trying to unpack that because oftentimes, if not always, people attribute anger and historical anger. And the reason for uprisings is because Lack of, of opportunity. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And while that might have been a legitimate reason why Trump got elected, that there was still a lot of economic pain that wasn't necessarily Obama's fault, but which occurred under his watch for conditions outside of his control, which mm-hmm. he's going to get blamed for as president, where there was a lot of anger causing the election of President Trump, right? To think that that anger didn't really dissipate um, over those three years. I wonder how much of it, this is, this we've really turned this into a winding conversation. I wonder, uh, I wonder how much of that has to do with the president's kind of grievous, grievances rhetoric style that he had where he was just angry the entire presidency, uh, some for legit reasons, some for not. But if, if your leader, is, is still projecting that anger and stoking the fires, whether they were racial or um, liberal or coastal or whatever the biases he's stoking, um, then your anger is not necessarily the economic anger that's affecting you because you are actually in a better economic spot than you were three years ago, but you're still angry for now other reasons. And uh, mm. that, it's interesting because if, if we look at it through that lens, and this was kind of where my hope in 2016 came in, where is this if, as if he could provide, preside over a burgeoning and an economy that continued to grow and then like softened his rhetoric because he was in charge and there was no need to be so angry all the time, then maybe we don't have a 2020. We, we have, you know, people are more content because there, there is more money in, in their pockets. There is more money in their bank accounts and they're, they're generally happier because their leader is not stoking all of these fears that they have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I did want to come back to uh, the, the one of the four that you had uh, that you had proposed that I, I maybe I just actually don't know much about when you were talking about judicial reform. Uh, what did you mean? Uh, I meant reforming what the judiciary looked like. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> like, the, I, I wish I could, uh, you know, as, as a potential future lawyer, I wish I could uh, say that we did a, <laughs> the Republicans did a good job, like reforming the judiciary system, but it was more like the makeup of the judiciary. Mm-hmm. So as I'm sure you're aware, 230 federal judges, 54 of the Court of Appeals, three support Supreme Court justices, um, you know, that, that's for conservatives and certainly someone like a McConnell, it was the ultimate achievement. And that's why you make the deal with the devil is to uh, implement, put these people in places where you can affect long lasting change throughout American society um, with these judges. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hard to, hard to argue with that. Uh, I mean, yeah. When, when achievement or accomplishment is not necessarily, I might argue like a positive thing, whether or not you're a conservative or not having a judiciary that potentially just doesn't represent um, a vast majority of the electorate or not a vast majority, but a majority of the electorate, right? He lost the popular vote by two and a half million, still lost the popular vote this time by, by a bigger stretch, but 
his appointments are lifetime appointments, as you said. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that there. I, I, I think that that is um, certainly something when, when they talk about Trump's lasting impact, you know, you're going to talk about what happened to the Republican party, but you're also going to talk about the courts for sure. All right. And then the last thing I want to talk about is the, the foreign policy. of, exactly. of President Trump. This is, this is sprawling in, in and of itself in that I, foreign policy. I think we have to talk about how he dealt with our allies. So we're talking like the EU, Canada, countries like that, how he dealt with enemies like uh, Iran, North Korea, Russia. Uh, and then the fact that and this was a hope for both of us in 2016. And he said he's proud of this. He was the first president uh, not to start any new wars. He, he brought thousands of troops home, both from the Middle East and uh, from bases all over the world, from Europe, from Asia. Uh, he, he withdrew from previous conflicts that, that we had been in, uh, particularly again in the Middle East. Uh, he, he presided over the killing of uh, the head of ISIS, Abu um, Abakar al-Baghdadi, uh, the killing of the Iranian general, Qasim Soleimani, uh, last year. Um, he did, had drew the red line in the sand with Syria with their use of chemical weapons and, and uh, sent bombs to attack Syrian air bases uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, he, so I, I guess there's a lot there. He, he, he reinstated some previously harsh policies against Cuba and Venezuela that the Obama administration had kind of backed away from. You know, he increased the, the support that EU countries provided for NATO and, and took, had the U.S. take a step back from, from NATO a little bit. And then separately, in what I think is objectively a really great achievement, he brokered through his administration uh, peace deals between Israel and, and four Arab Muslim-majority countries, uh, Bahrain, the UAE, Sudan, uh, Morocco, uh, and essentially made Israel's place in the world safer, uh, which I think is generally speaking a, a bipartisan thing that most people would say is a good thing. So there's uh, there's just foreign policy is so is so large, and his approach was so scattershot. But this is unlike the economy. This is where presidents have their biggest personal impact, and where Trump, I think, made some notable achievements and some notable mistakes, but. That's that's I laid out as much as I could. What do you take? Whatever you want. Yeah, take a buffet. It's it is. Uh, where where do I begin? I'm trying to try not to fill up on the salad and breadsticks. Um, I always make that mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but the all right. So there is certain certainly an element of reducing some degrees of our conflicts abroad um, that that I can appreciate. Certainly. Um, I have always been kind of counter or against the mindset that like, we should never talk to um, Russia. We should never talk to North Korea. I don't think that that meaningfully makes things better. Um, on the flip side, he's still been all about sanctions across the board. Personally, Venezuela, Cuba, I don't think that sanctions um, ever, I, I mean, I think that there is, there is potentially a place for sanctions short of military conflict as kind of uh, the stick um, when, when the carrot is not uh, 
when the carrot is not achieving the results, but, but really functionally, it makes the, the states and the actors more desperate. Um, it, uh, it makes things, you know, very difficult, um, for people in those places. So there's a lot of collateral damage when you do these types of things. And I don't think that it meaningfully makes us any safer. Um, it's, so, so, I mean, so, so, so there's kind of that element of it. Like, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call our policies towards Venezuela or Cuba successful um, in any way. I, I, I don't see any meaningfully, meaningful achievement um, that they've gotten. Um, similarly, like, you know, the, the killing of al-Baghdadi, uh, I personally don't know that killing individual terrorists um, is is also like kind of the the end game there um, when you're when you're sort of fighting an ideology. It's difficult uh, to you know we held up Osama bin Laden at one point, um, but killing him only made like 15 other people that now are are at the tops of our list. And 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 I believe that that honestly that that's what continues to happen. I don't I don't I'm not questioning uh, whether the guy was bad or not. Um, you know, the other person that you highlighted was Soleimani, uh, a, 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 uh, an Iranian general that was killed in Iraq. Um, honestly, I think that was a move meant to destroy. I forget exactly, you know, what crazy thing Trump had been doing at that time that he did that. Um, it but it was the first impeachment. That was the first impeachment. Right. So it was more realistically, he took an opportunity to kind of distract from what, what was going on domestically. Um, again, we're not at war with Iran currently, uh, whether, whether, you know, we're doing bad things in a place that they're also doing bad things. And sometimes our bad things are like, you know, crossing over each other. Um, I, I, and, and, and certainly like, you know, we've heard stories that, that Soleimani is the architect of a lot of American deaths in, in Afghanistan. I don't, I don't doubt that, but um, to kill a foreign general of a country that we're not at war with in another country that we're not supposed to be at war with um, doesn't necessarily like send the, the right message, whether or not like you're, you know, you can applaud the end result. Um, I think, I, I think so. Yeah, I have, <laughs> I, I, I started eating at the buffet line. I, <laughs> I forgot where I was. And, um, and here I am, I got a crab leg and like a half a sirloin steak left and I'm not sure. Uh, I got to give you the plate back. I guess. Yeah. It's, it's comp. I mean, this legacy of his is complicated. I, I will say that I appreciate his willingness, whether this was super intentional or not, to question the given orthodoxy that had reigned for the last X number of years throughout Republican and Democratic led administrations. Um, you know, despite the very different views the electorate has, Bush and Obama's foreign policy was very similar. Uh, and, and Trump looking at it and saying that this is not the right way to go. Again, he wasn't consistent. He he meets with the leaders of North Korea and Russia, which I agree with you. I think generally speaking, we should diplomatically engage with as many countries as possible and then throws huge sanctions on Iran, on Cuba, on Venezuela. So the, the lack of consistency was con like consistently frustrating for me watching it. But I do think he's he's given more voice and more platform for people, I would say, particularly in the Republican Party, which was known more as like the hawk 
party to say that actually, I don't think that this this military industrial complex that we've been having for the last at least 20 years, if not far longer, maybe the last 70 years is the way that we should be approaching foreign policy. And again, I don't think that he was super intentional with all of this, but his willingness to question it and not just fall in line with the, say the Bush Cheney orthodoxy was I think a, a huge improvement and sets future candidates and leaders and, and presidents up to be more intentional and more successful in this area. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I think that that's, that that is a fair takeaway. Of course he, you know, again, uh, on, on multiple occasions asked for increases to the defense budget, but, um, but I think those are, those are points well taken. All right. So I, I think leaving all of those, what I would term intentional achievements behind. And again, as, as Ricky fairly pointed out, and if, if I was arguing with someone to my right, I would have plenty of issues with those intentional achievements as well. Uh, but those are the things that Ricky, as you said, like those that we will look back on historians, conservatives will point to and say, like, look what Trump accomplished. So let's leave those to the side. This next Trump, category, Trump's impact, I think I will. Uh, I'll, I'll sure. With that. All right. I. Uh, here are some things that I would say, and if you you can look at you know, conservative media or even like the White House website. And here are some things that we can just do rapid reactions for where uh, the Trump administration will claim achievements. Uh, I think these are objectively wrong. But if you look at it, like if you went to the White House website or in a number of conservative publications, you will see these listed as achievements of, of the Trump administration. So achievements in immigration, achievements in healthcare, achievements in the environment, and then all of those, I think, are as you're laughing right now, then there are achievements, he would say, in religious liberty, education, the military, which we can maybe debate. They're kind of lower level things, not as issues, but amongst his quote unquote accomplishments. But I mean, any reaction like immigration achievements, healthcare, environmental achievements? I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where to start. Environmental achievements is is I mean, that's. La laughable in, in, in its level of absurdity. I mean, he did took a number of executive actions to try and gut the Clean Air and Clean Water Act, kind of removed the U.S. from the, the climate agreement, from the Paris Climate Agreement. I mean, you can argue how, uh, how much of an impact that was having, but still as a symbolic gesture, it was very anti-environment. Putting Scott Pruitt at the head of the EPA and basically telling the EPA, we don't want your help doing anything anymore. We want to remove anything climate related off of the website. And, and we want to stop studying this as an issue um, to say that, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know what he would point at as a, as a environmental accomplishment. You, you want a list? I, I can't even read all of it because there's like several pages on the White House website, but I'll, I'll hit a few of them for you. Uh, America in 2019 achieved the largest decline in carbon emissions since withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord. The U.S. has reduced carbon emissions by the nation. That's why you withdraw from it, Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, how about this? Between 2017 and 2019, the air became 7% cleaner. Cleanest air we've ever had. Great, beautiful air. What do you, is, how do you like that? This is... I mean, yeah, this is this is why alternative facts and like the those kinds of things drive me absolutely insane. So, you know, if you haven't been following sort of the energy sector news and, you know, God bless you, you, you really shouldn't. 
But the, all these things have happened in spite of Trump, not because of Trump. He was sort of advocating for a resurgence in American coal. Unfortunately, natural gas being as cheap as it was means that you have the exact opposite happening to what he had planned to happen. And that is largely responsible for a decrease in like all of those emissions, sulfur dioxide, all those kinds of things. It doesn't take a genius to understand well, natural that. gas is only so cheap because we're drilling in more areas, Ricky. <laughs> we were doing that with Obama, though. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it is one. It's one of those things where statistics don't tell the story. Right. And it is it is convenient often to like point to them and say, oh, you know, you don't need this because of this. Um, and I think and I think that's. It, it's one of those things where like when when the statistics are against you, then you look into them a little bit more. And when they're on your side, you're like, oh, yeah, obviously this is this is that. <laughs> but these are the things you'll see posted and I see posted on like my social media feeds of like, you know, of like all of these like bullet points that you see on the White House website right. Right now being like, you know, I don't know why people complain about the Paris Climate Accord. First of all, it's all a big hoax climate change. And then two, look at all the things that America's been able to accomplish without even being a part of that. Yeah. 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 No, it's, uh, it, it's fair. And it, I, I think it also then, um, probably, you know, as you said, with the, the issue of the economy being forefront in voters' minds, but actually presidents having little to do with how the economy actually performs. I think in, in more broad sense, it applies to like, it applies to everything issues like the environment, you know, he's, laid a, a lot of policies that will take time for, you know, the subsequent Biden administration to unwind, but they are in the long run going to have lasting impacts on the environment that you don't necessarily see year to year, um, you know, uh, lifting bans on um, certain endangered species. He's like lifted all, you know, all sorts of different changes um, that in their, sort of on the on the small scale in the short time frame have little impact you may even see sort of count, counterfactual um, uh, statistics coming up and saying well even though he did this look at what's happening to this population but nothing happens in a vacuum and so like understanding the impact of his policies it's we're almost too close to it it's like 10 years from now when when some type of bird is extinct, they're going to like come back and be like, oh yeah, Trump actually did this. And then all of a sudden we killed all those. And now here we are. <laughs> all right. And so I want to wrap this segment with what I would call unintentional achievements. And uh, I don't think these are good or bad. I'm ambivalent about them, but it's something that we have mentioned several times, particularly in the last few episodes where Trump's election for better and for worse has exposed a lot of things that we as Americans thought we were perhaps done with. And so I, I broke it down into, the first thing I'm gonna say is the amount of disaffection across large swaths of the country, both economic and racial dis disaffection that again, I'm not saying that these are, that it's good that he exposed these things or bad. It's just, he has exposed these. Yeah. Uh... I, I would say that it's good. It's like one of those things that you can't address a problem until, until that, you know, that you have it. And, um, and these problems have been there and 
you know, we, we look at Trump um, as kind of an, an embodiment or some, something who, ex, who exacerbates um, these issues, but the underlying problem still has existed. And so, you know, he's come, come here and ripped the scab off uh, many of these wounds that were just not healing properly because we weren't addressing them. Yeah. And you alluded to this in, in your first oh, like kind of opening remarks where you said, you know, I think for many people, particularly I would say for non-Black people, uh, we're able to point to Obama and say, look, you know, that's kind of the epitome. We've reached the peak, right? Coming off, you know, this past MLK weekend, I, I felt like when we would post MLK quotes from the last, over the last, or those eight years, they would be quotes of like hopefulness of like one day my kids will be able to be judged on their ability, not the, the content of their character, right? Not the color of their skin. And you point like, look, it happened. Right. And we have we have a black president now. Right. And you could kind of be like where there was this myth of like a post-racial society. Uh, and there were so many, I don't know, kind of antidotal things that liberals, upper class, coastal people could point to and say that we've look how much progress we've made. And not to discount the progress, but uh, certainly even seeing I mean, not we could point to so many things over these past four years. And I guess we will. But even seeing some of the iconography, iconography, uh, iconography, I think that's right. Uh, over at the Capitol, just the Confederate flags, the the anti-Semitic, uh, you know, T-shirts and, and helmets and signs, like those are the kind of things where I, I was, I perhaps continue to be stunned by some of this stuff, and, and not in a good way. You should, like, I should be more aware that those things exist. I don't, they don't necessarily exist within my world. But it's been, you know, Trump has shown that they exist in our world. Yeah. Yeah. And at a, uh, and they're, they're a lot more prevalent, I think, than we would like to think. I think before, um, before the Trump presidency, we were content in believing that that level of racism was so deep and dark, you know, on the on the fringes of American society, that it, uh, on mass it wasn't really a problem, um, but unfortunately they found a home um, in the Trump administration, uh, and and now they're they're kind of at at the forefront. But 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 in many ways, like we like the sort of the liberal minded and even sort of the moderate conservative minded people um, have been patting ourselves on the back that like, you know, progress is being made somewhere. Um, and so I can just worry about my own stuff. Um, but I, as, as we've seen, you know, social media has this like, uh, both, both the good and the bad, but it, it is really amplified for me how people are, um, paying so much closer attention, you know, not, not not always contributing in in the most um, productive ways, but uh, I've seen just a lot more critical thinking about even just you know reposting um, a Martin Luther King quote. Of course, there's a lot of like people trying to outwoke each other, which um, can be frustrating. But there is an acknowledgement that like yes, we often use Martin Luther King as the symbol of um, great American. Uh, you know, protest and how to protest the right way. And we trivialize, um, 
sort of the violence that was experienced in that time period. Um, we sort of deduce or reduce all of his messages into the only thing you need to do to make change in this in, in anywhere is, is a nonviolent protest where he spoke, you know, at length about a number of different things. Um, and we need to sort of explore that more deeply. And I'm starting to see people quote things beyond the, I have a dream speech, um, which I think is interesting and it's, and it's huge. Right. And like any historical figure, it, everyone uses MLK to suit their own particular beliefs and ends. But what I was saying, like, while for the eight Obama years, we had all of these, his quotes of like hopefulness. I feel like these last four years, and maybe particularly this year, you have all of his quotes of how much work needs to be done. And I think Trump's presidency has reminded us all. And I think it's appropriate to be addressing this the day after MLK's, uh, MLK day of, of how much work there is still to do um, on the racial front. And um, just to kind of echo the second part, but like the economic front too, is where people like me and you, while we were on perhaps different sides of the aisle, I think are, are, you know, fortunately okay. for us, yeah, yeah. but unfortunately like too far removed from true economic pain that's happening in, in a number of communities, both urban and rural across many, you know, you know uh, diverse set of communities uh, that continues to need to be addressed. Um, so like, I think those are things that, you know, hopefully will be addressed more head on in the next four years. And finally, the second bullet point that I had in front, as far as Trump's like unintentional achievements and you segued into this nicely was just the engagement that he's forced upon really almost everybody. Like we, we can't say this enough that 154 million people plus cast ballots uh, in early November, the two highest vote totals ever in American history. And while some of that is due to natural population growth, it is like you had mentioned before, the highest percentage in a hundred plus years, the engagement, whether it's on social media or the conversations we have with our family and friends, uh, it just seems that everyone is, is engaged. And whether it's like the actual engagement of voting or organizing or going out and, and you know, holding signs or protesting or whatever, or the antidote engagement that we see kind of in our daily lives, uh, this is something I would categorize as a good thing. Yeah, uh, I will. I will say that um, without Trump, we probably wouldn't have a podcast. <laughs> All right, uh, that's fair. Well, because uh, that, put that, that was up like, on the White House uh, website. Yeah, uh, achievement number one. Uh, <laughs> All right. When we come back, we will we'll wrap the segment with the the failures of the of the Trump administration, and I promise we won't dwell on them for for too too long. What's the real motives? In the land of the free is for the free lotus. Leave us dead in the street to be the organ donors. They disorganized my people, made us all loners. Still got the last names of our slave owners. In the land of the free is for the free lotus. So we're going to follow the same type of format here. I'm going to throw my five biggest failures of the Trump administration at Ricky. Uh, Ricky, you can react to as many as you want. I know you have your own list. Uh, but we're not going to keep people here all, all day and night with your list. So we're going to stick, we'll try to stick to my five. If there's any that I don't mention that you desperately want to talk about, we can do that too. So uh, one is something that we just mentioned, the rise of white supremacists under the administration. And so just, this was top of my head and this isn't great, but things that I came up with were um, the, the Charlottesville, the Unite the Right rally several years ago, three years ago now, um, the Tree of Life anti-Semitic murders um, in Pittsburgh, the 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 um, 
the anti-Jewish uh, murders that occurred, uh, the continued murders of you know, Black Americans by police officers, and then the counter-protests this summer, not the protests themselves, which arise, arose out of like racial animus, but the, the counter-protests to people protesting for Black Lives Matter. Um, and then it's hard to quantify, but just just the inflammatory rhetoric and, and dog whistles or or blatant whistles that that Trump gave. So that, that's my number one. Two, uh, some of his immigration policies, uh, most egregious are, in my opinion, uh, was the the treatment of of families and children at at the border, the, our, our border with Mexico, uh, whether it was uh, keeping the families in cages or separating families from their children or um, enforcing. Uh, families that camp on the other side of the border or sending, you know, people seeking asylum back to to countries that they're fleeing. Uh, there are clearly huge problems with our immigration policy as a country. That was not the way to address it. Uh, in addition to that, we had what's has been known as his Muslim ban, where he banned, you know, anybody from Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen from entering the United States. He later added a few more countries. So we got one, the white national, the white supremacist, two, the immigration, three, the quid pro quo with Ukraine, which led to his first impeachment, uh, which it seemed clear that he was using presidential power to to dig up dirt on his political opponent and further his own career. Uh, four, I have the handling of the coronavirus over the last year. And then five, I would have the election fraud accusations, which resulted in the ultimate January 6th storming of the Capitol. So uh, those are big and broad and all of them are ugly, uh, which, which if any, if all, do you want to talk about? Oh man. Yeah. I'm glad we went through your list um, because I think I'm, I'm, I am afraid if I, if I start, uh, I won't be able to, to stop here. Um, if I was to bucket, right. Like I think, I think sort of the, the, we talked about kind of the benefits of exposing to broader American society that racism still exists. I think the flip side of that is he really elevated a lot of um, racist, uh, racist groups, uh, racist thinking to the forefront and gave it uh, a semblance of legitimacy um, which is feels absurd here in 2021. Um, but you know, to go on your list and I, and I, and honestly, I think his immigration policy goes hand in hand with, um, the racism, right? Like you, it's very difficult to separate those two things. Um, but you know, right off the bat, he got endorsed by David Duke and was very David Duke, sort of a, a former Imperial grand wizard of the KKK and was very hesitant to like come out and say like I don't I don't want that endorsement. You want me to disavow someone I don't even know? I don't I don't know. He could he could be any he did a number of things. But I disavow what I sure sure whatever I disavow. Yeah. Right exactly and <laughs> right the same way that he uh, you know denounced um, or or renounced support of and um, the Proud Boys during the presidential debate. Right it was it was. Uh, you know, what do you mean to say? Fine, fine. Stand back and stand by. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so that was from the beginning to the end and it predated his, his presidency. Um, and you know, so, so there's that you can, you can add to that calling, um, immigration from poorer countries, 
in Africa, calling them shithole countries. Um, you mentioned the Muslim ban. I would also add the pro-Confederate, uh, you know, keeping Confederate names on monument or Confederate statues in public spaces, um, saying that that somehow, uh, you know, not honoring um, the Confederacy is is anti like um, American, which is also uh, some degree of insanity. And it feels like, um, you know, you really got to twist yourself into a pretzel to figure that one out. Um, the, the Mexicans are rapists. I think we forgot to mention that the, you know, the, the, the mass murder in the Walmart in El Paso, Texas, um, the guy referenced a lot of, um, of Trump rhetoric and, and things that were sort of floating around in Trump circles that, you know, these are invaders coming into our space. Um, you know, invaders being people who are brown and black, um, from other countries coming into the United States. So the, just the broader elevation of racism, while to a degree, it probably was necessary to finally address some of these issues that have been lingering under the surface. I think, you know, we, we, through his administration, we blew past, um, we blew past sort of the, the point. It's like, you know, for, for reasonable people, we now, now are, if your eyes weren't open before they're open now, but unfortunately um, we got, we got some other problems that we thought had been dealt with to, to really deal with um, <clears throat> the, what you mentioned about Ukraine, I think, you know, that's not an isolated incident. His, the level of corruption in his administration um, is going to, you know, we talk about lasting effects is going to have um some some real impact on uh, how Americans conduct foreign policy, um, how people sort of just view our institutions, that there were just a lot of things that people probably would have thought are, hey, there are rules against doing stuff like that. And in reality, it's just like, you know, you just don't do that. Where the, imp where the appearance of impropriety is there, you kind of stay away from it. And his entire position was like, fuck that. I'll do whatever I want. Um, I don't, I, we haven't really sworn on this podcast, but anyways, that that's I always really... throw the explicit tag on it just in case. So <laughs> at least, at least it's, it's, it'll be warranted this time. Okay. All right. Good. Um, which, which has really been his, um, you know, from refusing to divest from his businesses, uh, where it was often confusing. Is he, is he advocating on America's interests or is he advocating on the interests of his, um, of his businesses, right? So there was, uh, you know, that degree. And then, <clears throat> of course, the way he used his pardons. Um, and, you know, feel free to jump in here. But obviously, I can go I can go on forever. Um, because these things were never like isolated incidents. Um, for me, they all kind of were, were stringing together. And I think the last thing that I'll say that, that I think you alluded to across the board, um, but I would probably like to say explicitly is just beyond the lies around the election, just undermining faith in all of our institutions. So, you know, the democracy was kind of the icing on the cake or the pinnacle of his achievement. Like, how do I undermine, like, what makes America, America? That's what he did um, these last five months. But before that, he took a hatchet to um, the EPA by, you know, he took a hatchet to the Justice Department by anybody who he didn't like, 
he would fire every single one of his appointees um, that were doing his bidding, you know, almost like to a hundred percent. But as soon as they, they showed like one qualm of like, you know, I don't know that I can do that for you, Mr. President. He was like, well, get the fuck out then I'll find somebody who can. Um, He just refused at any instance to, to admit fault or wrongdoing. Um, And I think, and I think that that is one of the things when I, when I look back at his presidency that obviously frustrates and angers people on the left that it's like, you know, sometimes they'd be obvious little things that he would just refuse to, to, to just say, Oh yeah, made a mistake about that. But, but the bigger issues um, where he was wrong, it was always, if you tell me I'm wrong, I'm double down, I'm doubling down. And, you know, you know, you know what, you know, you know what you can do with that opinion there, you know, where you can stick it basically. Yeah. I think to go back to something you said at the beginning and where my optimism in November of 2016 was sadly misplaced was that I, I vastly underestimated what a bad person he was. And for, for people that want to say, I told you so, like, if you were saying that in 2016, you were right. Uh, I never, and I don't, I don't think that all the I told you so people out there necessarily expected everything that they said was going to happen that actually happened that, you know, they predicted it. But uh, I, you know, remember when we talked about the debate and you said that he had no intention of actually debating. It's almost in a lot of ways that he had, he had no intention of actually being a president for the country. He, he, he did it to, to grow for his own self-interest, for his own self-promotion, for his own power and ambition. And everything that went along with that, all of, all of the decisions, like we can point specifically to say like the Ukraine, but you, you, you mentioned all of the other ones relating to his businesses or, you know, firing up his base. Uh, it, it's hard to, to almost put him in the, the category of, where does he fall amongst presidents? Because I think for, I, like I'm not a presidential scholar, but it, I would imagine that most people who were president wanted to be president and like intended to try to do like good things. Uh, and upon reflection, while Trump may have done some good things, in my opinion and other people's opinions, it, it seems like he had no intention, especially given what's happened over these last few months of making this country better. Because if you had, if that was your intention, you never would have done these things over the past few months. And again, while you could say, hey, I, I told you so, it's, I think a lot of that wasn't truly exposed for me, maybe for others, for others, it hasn't been exposed at all until after the election. Uh, but yeah, if you wanted to say that he's taken a hatchet to democratic institutions for four years, I wouldn't fight you too hard on that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I think if, whether people have a, a, a come to Jesus moment, you know, whenever they have it on, on this issue, um, or on his presidency as a, a whole, um, I, you know, I, whatever, whatever straw it is that breaks the camel's back for you. I, I think that that, at this point is, is, is what it is. And it's time, time for us to, to figure out how to put his administration in the past and, and sort of put some of these pieces back together. Um, 
as we as we look to move forward. Yeah, there's there's a quote from uh, Batman, the the Dark Knight, that I I saw floating around. I'm not going to take credit for this. I saw floating around somewhere last week, and I, I think it's appropriate. Do you know what I'm going to reference? I think so. All right. So it's well, this is the so just to give some background. This the Dark Knight's the one with Joker, Heath Ledger's all time performance, and he's he's tormenting the city, and uh, Bruce Wayne is down in, in the back cave with Alfred. And they're looking at the chaos in the city. And, and Bruce says, I knew the mob wouldn't go down without a fight, but this is different. They crossed the line. And this is, you know, essentially like the story of our capital. And Alfred says, you crossed the line first. You squeeze them, you hammer them to the point of desperation. And in their desperation, they turned to a man they didn't fully understand. And it, and this is like the segment where I said last week where I felt bad for a lot of people where I do think that there was a lot of pain for a lot of different reasons across large swaths of the country. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But these people were backed into a corner and they turned to Donald Trump because he said that I'm the man, that I can fix this. And ultimately, they had no idea what they were getting themselves into. Uh, and, you know, the, the classic line that comes out of that where, you know, Wayne's, Bruce Wayne says, you know, criminals aren't complicated, Alfred. You just got to figure out what they want. And... Alfred Pennyworth says, you know, sometimes men just like to watch the world burn. And it, it's, that's, it's a very dark quote to compare like Trump to the Joker. But I mean, if you look around the world right now, you look at, you know, Washington DC on the last day of his presidency, there are more troops in Washington DC than there are in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan combined. You know, there that we have a, a city, a country ravaged by disease where 400,000 people have died. We have an economy in, in, in shambles where, you know, 20 million people are out of work. Uh, and we have, we, we're not sure that the transfer, there will be a peaceful transfer of power tomorrow. Uh, it's, it's a dark movie, a dark allegory, but it's, it's, it's a dark day in a lot of ways. Yeah. Luckily, that movie had a happy ending and so ours, hopefully. I think you're <laughs> no the movie did not have a happy ending <laughs> but the trilogy did kind of we wrapped it up it, it yeah, took yeah. I'm talking about the whole I mean okay. Batman all right things, so fine fine in that sense, for Batman fine all right it took it took a few years but eventually where Gotham was able to get itself together a little bit right okay. yeah. all right well that was not what I you know what I meant. Well, I'm saying maybe it's got, this is going to take some time to move on from this, yeah. not only historically to, to categorize like and in, in understand the legacy of these last four years, but as a country, you know, uh, Biden's promised unity, but that if it happens at all, it's, it's not going to happen tomorrow. No, definitely not. And with that, maybe we'll call call the end of our, our first season of a general you're, you're not even gonna consult me on this you're just gonna call at the end of the it's first over. season it's over <laughs> all we're, right we're already at a two-hour mark basically for this no episode. way no way it's uh, fine fine all right this will be the last episode of the first yeah that's a that's fitting appropriately new season yeah. new yeah. season new president new year new me all of it sounds good till next time buddy all right happy birthday again mr goshra I'll tell him you said so. See, <laughs> See you, buddy.
Keep out. 